If you can, enter into this situation with me as we set up our exploration of the text this morning. A dad walks into his kitchen, roughly approaching the 6 o'clock time frame in the morning. Here he comes, coming to get maybe cup number two of his morning coffee. In comes dad, round the corner, heading down the corridor to the kitchen, just coming to grasp maybe the second cup of coffee in the morning, to find a toddler. Could be a him, could be a her. Just say there is a toddler in the kitchen, on the floor. Small bowl of Hershey's Kisses on the floor. Wrappers on the floor. Chocolate on the mouth. Dad says, did you eat those? Toddler contemplates. (laughs) You see, the toddler is considering the outcome. Of the response. So in this stare, the machine is moving. Considering if I say this, it lands me there. If I say this, that'll really land me over here. My point being, the conclusion is driven by the concern. I'm nervous about this exchange between me and my dad, given what we're looking at. So I'm going to take a pathway that can guarantee me the best outcome. I would submit to you that we tend to do that as well in our biblical interpretations. Not all the time, but we're, we're susceptible to that, aren't we? All of us. Again, I would plug and encourage you, join our Calvin Club. So we can look, maybe we've heard things about Calvin, both positively and negatively. Great, great time to get together and mine some of that out because there's something bigger than a dorm room discussion at stake, commercial aside. We consider the conclusion or the outcome, and then from that outcome we work backward in our interpretation, our homework. There's something at stake here. I'm going to make some choices along the pathway that guarantee the best possible outcome. I think we do that, typically we will do that in these warning passages, what are called warning passages. That is, there's a stern warning here that has been read from you from the book of Hebrews. The apostle warns the church severely 
about salvation is at stake. Toddler, us, nervous about what we just read. Maybe nervous about what we think it might be saying. Nervous about the conclusion, the outcome, we work from the conclusion we want in reverse to uphold that conclusion we're hoping we arrive at. Bad method of homework. Let's don't do that. Let's don't do that together this morning. Together. We'll all take a deep breath. And we'll pursue this warning passage, considering it as faithfully as we absolutely can, without being nervous about the conclusion. Let's just pursue the text of what it says as plainly as possible. I will seek to do that with you by this is my method with you this morning. To explore this text without a pre-written conclusion. Have you ever read it or heard it read or seen it? And immediately your mind went to who is the audience? Maybe that's not the best question. Well, we want to ask that question because it's, our conclusion is concerning us. Um, let's don't ask that question. Maybe we should ask, what's the function of the warning? Rather than who is the audience? Without a pre-written conclusion, let's explore this text together. Would you do that with me? And I want to do that by, one, offering you a statement. Number one, a statement about the text followed by a little bit of work through the passage with a conclusion that corresponds to the statement. So this is what I'm offering you this morning. Through this passage, let's walk through it together. For what is here for us from the Lord without a pre-written conclusion? Statement I will provide. Work through the text together as we look at it. And then we provide a conclusion to the statement. That makes sense. All of us operate that way. Let's do that here on this text this morning. Then I will provide you a second statement. A little bit of homework and a conclusion to statement number two. We'll put them together and we'll make application. Fair enough. So let's do that. We have something to do this morning. So let's look at this text together and let's do it. So far, we come to statement number one about this passage. And we'll see as the book of Hebrews continues to develop, we'll see it in other passages as well. So I say to you, statement number one this morning to you and I about this passage is the warnings in Hebrews. That is, I'm warning you, you will fall away. The warnings in Hebrews are addressing genuine believers. Okay, I'm providing you that statement. And then we're going to look at the text, and then we're going to make a conclusion about what we have just stated. The warnings in Hebrews are addressing genuine believers. So, we're already in the realm of application this morning, because I trust by your confession this morning, each of you who do confess Christ as your Savior, this text is for you. That is, I, I, I know that to be the case. So great, so your ears are perking up because you recognize, wait a minute, it's not to a second group that I've created in my mind. No, it's not. It's to you. Great. Let us hear from the word of the Lord. 
the warning in Hebrews are addressing genuine believers. Let me show you how that is the case as we now take the statement and we walk through the text just briefly. Let us see that this is the case by first considering the audience. Let us look at the text quite plainly. Here we are looking at the evidence of the toddler with the chocolate on their mouth, with the bowl sitting there that is now empty. The evidence is right here before us. I pick up with you in verse 1 that we know these are genuine believers. Verse 1, therefore let us Leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying out of the hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Warning. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance. Those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. It is impossible if they then fall away. They, them, if they fall away. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Look at the text with me as we identify the audience as genuine believers. I hope that it's obvious to you. Let's let it be obvious from the text. Notice in verse 4 where he begins, for it is impossible to do what? Restore what? Restore again. By using the language of restore again, the apostle makes very clear that these individuals have done what to this point? experience genuine repentance. Right? It would be impossible, he says, to you this morning. You. Not a hypothetical person. You who have experienced genuine repentance. It would be impossible. It will be impossible to renew you again to where you are currently situated. It's Believers, genuinely, those who experienced genuine repentance. Look up in the text at verse 1. What does genuine repentance here from verse 4? It would be impossible to restore again to repentance. Because you're there now. In genuine repentance, how do we know that it's not a false sense of uh, confession? Or, uh, or not a, a, a true sense of biblical repentance? Because we see in verse 1, repentance involves what? Faith toward God. Some of you maybe have heard that. They teach that in, I think, like a systematic theological conversation. Faith and repentance are the same side of, uh, are, are opposite sides of the same coin. To kind of work out. So are you, do you have faith and then repent? Do you repent and then have faith? They say, it's two sides of the same coin. That is, one necessarily involves the other. To believe. So he says, it would be impossible to restore you again. Restoration language. Meaning, it's been accomplished once. Genuine belief has occurred. You've repented. It's not a false repentance. We know that repentance involves what? Faith toward God. It is to believers. To you. He is warning you. 
that you will not be restored if you fall away. We're going to follow this pathway because we're not confessing a pre-written conclusion that lets us not interpret the text this way. Let us walk through the text and see what is there. So the conclusion so far, just it, it isn't the final conclusion, statement one, but a brief conclusion of what we see in the details of the passage so far for you this morning, a believer, is this. At this point in the text, the apostle is warning you that it is impossible to restore you to the position that you are currently in if you fall away, not someone else, you. The question at this point in our mind, our, begin, our mind gets real, is Pastor Adam teaching what is consistent with what this church practices and believes? Yes, 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 absolutely. Am I confused on what this church believes? I don't think so. I don't think so. We're following a genuine pathway through the text to arrive at a conclusion. Good homework. So as we follow the steps through the passage, what, what right now in a level of discomfort that just said believers can fall away? He's talking to you to fall away, to not do that. What is the question in our mind that we might be wrestling with? And it is this, in my opinion. Our temptation at this point in the text is to redefine the audience. That is where we get off the pathway. Right now, we're not happy. What is he saying? We can fall away. Those who have experienced Christ, genuine repentance, faith in God, we are the people who could fall away. I don't like that. Let's come up with different people in this passage instead of us. No, we're not allowed to do that. Technical foul. However, it doesn't stop us from doing it quite oftentimes. The evidence is on the floor. The toddler is there. The chocolate is there. The, the, the wrappers are there. There's no one else in the room that ate those. Even if I don't want to do what I'm about to have to do, I can't say because of that level of discomfort, there must have been another toddler in this house that did that. I'm going to find someone else. Because then it's not my responsibility to deal with this situation because it must be somebody else's child. No, it's, no, the evidence lies before you. So too in this text. But that doesn't stop us. Typically in this text, what we do, because it's a little bit, we don't want to involve we move from the evidence I just read for you, from believers, what describes you as a believer. We move from that to what we call false professors. Have you ever heard of that? We look at this text and we say, this passage must be talking to people who hypothetically thought they were saved, and they're not. That is, they are false professors. They stood and said, I love the Lord, I'm growing with the church, I'm a believer, and they're false. And he's warning them that they're going to be found out. Because it can't be to us, because we all know the conclusion is we can't fall away. So we find another pathway, don't we? Redefine the audience. But the definition, if I could clarify, the definition of false professor, maybe you've heard that, maybe you haven't. That is, they never really believed in the first place. But as we look at this, the text does not allow for that. The category of false professor is foreign 
to the passage. So if we believers look at this text and we say that warning applies to another category of individual, we are not being honest with the passage and we are not being honest with the way that the Lord keeps us on the pathway to redemption. We're not being honest. If we say there's some other group in this church that he's talking to, no, there isn't. He's talking to us. Believers. Genuine repentance and faith toward God. He's warning us, not hypothetical people that the text has not mentioned. So, what at this point is a consideration in the passage? Let me point out to you one that might put you past the edge. If right now you're on the edge saying, maybe it is genuine faith, maybe it is genuine repentance, and these are genuine believers. Let me put you over the edge with not going through each of the descriptions of how he's describing true faith and true believers, that is, describing you, the church, you and I. But let me draw your attention to one that must put us over the edge, in my estimation, by adding up all of the details of the passage. There is one here that really pushes us over the edge to guarantee it is not this group we have created called false professors that he is addressing, but he's addressing the church. Verse 5, here's the one I would isolate for you in coordination with Paul's theology as well in the New Testament. Verse 5, they have tasted of the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. They have experienced the powers of the age that is to come. That is a huge declaration of your life in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 is a place where you could go if you wanted to kind of cross-reference what the impact of your life is in experiencing the powers of the age to come. Who is it at the end of Ephesians? No. Almost the end, midway, yes. End, yes, back on the end, yes. The end of chapter 1. Who is it that is above every power? Risen to reign. And he is Lord, not of this realm only, but also of the age that is to come. Christ. And in Ephesians 1, the great declaration of you being incorporated into him and sealed by the power of the Spirit, you experience in him the powers of the age to come. In other words, he is your Lord. It's an experience of the Lordship of Christ. You're a new age creation. You're experiencing that. And he is warning you to not fall away. So it is as we continue. The conclusion then to statement number one. Briefly, the warnings. This is the statement that I am pursuing with you. Statement number one. The warnings in Hebrews are addressing genuine believers. And in my estimations, it couldn't be clearer from this text. That leads me then to my conclusion based on what we've looked at so far. From the age to come, the audience that is declared, the evidence before us is this. God uses warnings and promises, threats and consolations to secure believers in the way of salvation. This is, the, this is the conclusion that we can draw from this evidence. This is how you are to read Hebrews 6. This is how you are to read your New Testament. This is how you are to see Hebrews 10. God uses warnings and promises, threats and consolations, 
working in tandem. Not in opposition to one another. In tandem. To do what to his children? To secure them in the way of salvation. This is him securing you. Next week we'll look. I would keep you here for like six hours. And I know you'd love it, but I would just get tired, right? If we also considered how this then, and it might be the question at the end of the sermon. Hopefully not, but it might be. Maybe so, good, you'll come next week. How, how does this not contradict the call for bold confidence? Great. Teaser, commercial alert. Come next week and we'll see how it doesn't do that at all. Yet it drives us more confidently so. He speaks promise and warning, threat and consolation to keep you in the pathway of salvation. This does not serve the false professor. This other person we've said it might apply to, it serves the children. So, let me see how this interpretation continues to be upheld or reinforced by statement number two. If I could offer you, we're already at statement number two. Statement number two through the text this morning is this. The warnings in Hebrews are, uh, let me just say this term and then maybe briefly define. The, the, the warnings in Hebrews are prospective, not retrospective. So you're with me, right? The warnings in Hebrews, this is how they're working. They first work in you, and this is how they work in you. Prospectively, they're warning you in this direction. They are not warning you in this direction. They are, number two, warnings in Hebrews. And I'll explain through the text if you stay with me just a few minutes. We're already there at number two. But the warnings in Hebrews are prospective, not retrospective, that is, forward-looking, not backwards. What do I mean by that? When you read Hebrews 6 as a believer this morning, you hear it preached to you, you're considering the application, what is the benefit of me sitting here listening to him talk about Hebrews 6 right now to me? What is the benefit? It is that it is calling you, believer, Believer, genuine repentance, faith toward God, experiencing the age that is to come, the Lordship of Christ. What are his benefits to me? It is calling you to future-oriented action. Future-oriented, to look to the end, to consider the outcome of your faith, and take action to get there. Take action. That's what it is. It isn't to create a fearful, guilt-ridden, sad experience of worry. It is to promote future orientation in your immediate life. It's prospectively looking. It applies to the believers. What would a retroactive warning consist of? It would be to call you to examine the past. For what point? Why would I this morning exhort you to consider your life in the past in Christ? What would be its benefits? How would I warn you to consider the past and how that would now affect you? You see, it's impossible to access 
If it spoke to you to warn you about your past experience, to internally look within, that is, look within to the meaningfulness or the lack thereof of your confession of Christ, how would that serve you? How would that promote the way of redemption for you? By warning you retroactively. Not future-oriented. The gospel is driving you on, not driving you back. Consider this moment in your life. And I'm warning you, it better have been meaningful. It better have been sincere. And you're sitting there doing this number. Was it? I don't know. Maybe I'll repeat it. That'll guarantee its meaningfulness. Am I that meaningful right now? I don't know. What song are they playing? That's utterly unhelpful. The warnings in Hebrews are not to a separate group of people. And they're not to believers to look backward. They drive us on in the way of redemption. They're prospectively looking. And it's encouraging you as a believer. Have the same outlook. Look forward to Christ. Not backward and within. Look outward and ahead. Let me show you how there's two pieces in the text. As I said, I'll make a statement, and then we'll kind of work through the text a little bit, and then I'll make the conclusion. Let me lead you to how I see that as absolutely keenly evidenced in the text. Let me show you how there are two textual factors that provide confidence for this interpretation. Number one, it is, how, do I, how can I be confident that the warnings are calling me to future-oriented action in the present, to look to the future and not backward? Number one is the plain language used in the warning itself. In Bible interpretation, if you've ever taken a um, class on learning how to interpret, or you've taken a Bible class maybe through your local church at some time, or college, etc., whatever, on the internet, um, on how to get the most out of my Bible reading. And somebody's saying, I want to learn kind of the methods of interpreting and how to work through a passage. Step number one in 101 is the plain reading of the passage is typically going to be the best reading of the passage. Great. Pretty straightforward. What do I get paid for? I don't know. <laughs> Making this as complex as possible to really show you what I do with my time. The plain reading is the preferred reading. And then there's other factors from there that we begin to interact with and work through in order to guarantee its best possible interpretive outcome. But right up front, the plain reading is typically going to be the best reading of the passage. So let me show you how, again, the warning is future-oriented in your life right now. Consider the future from the plain reading of the passage. What do I mean? Point out the plain reading then. All right, great, I will. Verse 6, the plain reading. If they then fall away. Do you see how it's future-oriented? Speaking to believers prospectively. Then is a future outlook. If they then fall away, those who have experienced repentance and genuine faith toward God, verse 1, it would be impossible to restore them to the position they are currently in if they then, future orientation, fall away. 
The warning to a lack of restoration is to drive you forward in considering future-oriented action in Christ. If they then keep going, consider Jesus. Fix your eyes, Hebrews 12, on Jesus. Look and go, because it would be impossible to restore you where you are if you then, future-oriented, fall away. The second obvious one from the text, join with me again, looking at verse 6. If they then fall away, since they are, in that moment, in the future, crucifying how many times? Once again. Speaking of a prior life in Christ, of apostasy. They're crucifying once again. A repeat action. Looking to the future. Second element of how this is a plain indicator that the warnings are future-oriented to drive you onto Christ, not backwards and inside to yourself to consider your past and its meaningfulness or be concerned for its lack thereof. But it's not driving you there. It's driving you heaven-bound. It's driving you under Christ, future-oriented. The second indicator of the text that clearly stakes this out is how salvation is spoken of in the book of Hebrews. That is, salvation at stake is a future salvation. So we're thinking a little bit more of the immediate moment of salvation, individual salvation. The book of Hebrews is actually speaking future about your salvation. So guess what? Salvation is looking to the future. All right? So that he's driving you on to that salvation. And so the way he's driving you on to stay moving is by giving you warnings for that future salvation to keep you, as you're going, not doing this number. You're going this way, and he's going like this. Since the salvation is future-oriented, so too are its warnings. Keep going. Keep going. And he's going to keep you going through promise and warning, threat and consolation in the way no, I'm going. No, you're not. Because I read the warning and it's serving me unto redemption. Let me show you just how, just briefly, let me show you a couple of passages where we know so far the ground that we have covered speaks, that is, the apostle to the Hebrews speaks of salvation as a future-oriented outcome. Look in chapter 1, verse 14. Let me just give you a brief, only in the chapters that we have already covered together in our exploration of Hebrews, but look at how future salvation is at stake here. It is a future orientation throughout the book. Verse 14 of chapter 1. So, since this is future, so too are its warnings serving you forward, not backward as a believer. Verse 14 Are they not all ministering spirits? We covered that. The angels sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Future oriented salvation. So, since it outcome is future, so too are its warnings serving you forward. That is prospectively, not retroactively. Look at chapter 2, verse 3 then. Salvation is yet again spoken of in terms of future deliverance. Verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared to us at first by the Lord, and it was heard and attested to those by uh, those who heard. Let me see. Yes. So you see there in the language, in my reading aloud, I was missing my point. 
Verse 3, to neglect such a great salvation. If we escape, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Future orientation of escape in the day of deliverance. Look at chapter 2, verse 10 now. Looking yet again to future orientation of salvation. Verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Yet again, the glory is future oriented. So too are the warnings. Prospective, not retroactive perspective. So, what do I mean by this? Consider with me as I draw to our second conclusion. So I've offered statement number one, conclusion number one, statement number two, and I'm drawing to the conclusion of statement number two. That is, I would suggest to you that the plain language of the warnings, the plain language, combined with the future orientation of our salvation, makes clear that the warnings are prospectively driving you, believer in Christ. They're driving you on in the gospel, not retrospectively examining you as a false professor. That brings me to my final conclusion, conclusion number two. The warnings function. Now we're getting to the function, not who's there. We we know who's there. You're here. You're there. I'm there. And what is, after all this dust is settling, what is its function this morning in my life? It is to warn you. Please hear me. It is to warn you that eternal life comes only to those who after having received it, persevere in it to the end. That's what it's saying. This is how it functions in your life to warn you about what is at stake. Not back in 1998, but what is at stake today? And again tomorrow, and again the next day. I conclude with one reading. I thought maybe we would conclude this time together as we look at Hebrews 6. And then now that I've said this, that it makes clear that those who will inherit eternal life are those who, after having received it, persevere in it all the way to the end. Does that contradict our bold confidence that we have in Christ? No, it does not. And I will demonstrate that, Lord willing, next Sunday in the second half of the chapter. Let me conclude this morning with how the warnings function in the life of the church. This is a quote I will read. Please stay with me from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He wrote a long time ago about this text. And I think it brings our time to a wonderful conclusion and makes it rather clear. Speaking of Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, about the warnings to 
the believing community. Spurgeon writes, quote, If God has put it in, He has put it in for wise reasons and for excellent purposes. Let me show you why. First, O Christian, it is put in to keep thee from falling away. God preserves His children from falling away. But He does so by the use of means. This is a deep precipice. What is the best way to keep one from going down there? Why? To tell him that if he did, he would inevitably be dashed to pieces. In some old castle, there is a deep cellar where there is a vast amount of fixed air and gas which would kill anybody who went down. What does the guide then say? If you go down, you will never come up alive. Who thinks then of going down? The very fact of the guide telling us what the consequences would be it's impossible to restore you to repentance keeps us from it. Our friend puts away from us a cup of arsenic. He does not want us to drink it, but he says, if you drink it, it will kill you. Does he suppose for a moment that we should drink it? No. He tells us the consequences. And he is sure, upon hearing them, we will not drink it. So God says, my child, if you fall over this precipice, you will be dashed to pieces. What does the child then do? He says, Father, keep me from the edge. Hold out thou to me your hand, and I shall be safe. It leads the believer to greater dependence on God for all that he promises to provide. The warning is for you to keep you from the consequence of falling away.